Hi, I'm Alice from the Postdoc Development Center at Queen's University, Belfast. Welcome to our podcast, The Theory of the Postdoc Evolution. This episode is an extract from an interview organized by Claire Tonry in December 2020. It features Dr. Derek Brazel, a senior lecturer in the Wellcome Wilson Institute for Experimental Medicine at Queen's. Derek highlights the different steps in his career, especially his experience of traveling the world for research, and shares some tips to succeed in academia. Enjoy! So, Derek completed both his undergraduate and PhD in UCD. Um, he then moved to Boston, where he worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at the Harvard Medical School. And he then moved to Switzerland, where he worked as a senior postdoctoral researcher um, at the Friedrich Meister Institute for Biomedical Research. Um, Derek then came back to Dublin to work in the Conway Institute in UCD as a principal investigator, and he's now working in Queens as a senior lecturer. So I'll hand over to you, Derek. Thanks very much, uh, Claire. Uh, it's a, a particular pleasure to do a talk like this. The first thing to know is when you look at Uh, an academic, be they a professor or a lecturer, or indeed when you look at anybody, but particularly academia, things are usually not what they see. So most people think, okay, undergraduate, master's, PhD, uh, postdoc, junior faculty, linear path, but in reality life is, is complicated, and, and this is more likely to be somebody's path where there's bends in the road, sharp turns, reversing back on yourself to eventually end up at your destination. And that's certainly my story. And don't forget, of course, the paths not traveled, the options that you didn't take, that you might have taken, uh, that you know, may have led you to a, a different destination. Often when you go to schools or you're giving a talk, people say to you, when did you know that you wanted to be a scientist? And some people say, well, I never really knew, I just fell into it. But I knew when I was about eight years old that I, I wanted to be a scientist and be involved in medical research. And luckily, I had really supportive parents, and uh, Santa was good to me that year because I got a chemistry set and a microscope for Christmas. So uh, me and my friend almost blew up the kitchen uh, playing around with some of the more reactive chemicals in the set. And this was great because I would actually make my own slides, you know, I'd take little slices of onion or, or go and get leaves from the garden and, and stuff like that. So it's important to have support, um, and I certainly had it, and uh, I guess maybe I'm unusual that I knew very early on what I wanted to do with my uh, life. So I um, applied to do science in UCD, which is a four-year degree, and in 1992 graduated with a uh, BSc in Pharmacology and Organic Chemistry. Here's one of those uh, bends in the road that you didn't expect. I wanted or I had applied and discussed with Luke O'Neill in Trinity to do a PhD with him. So I was like, well, that, that sounds like a, a good thing to do. But then what happened is I did my honors project with Alan Keenan in UCD. And I walked into his office one day and he said, ah, the very man. We just got a grant from the EU and as a PhD position, Uh, available, but you have to go to Germany to do it. Are you interested? So, of course, I was, uh, and then I went off to do my PhD in Germany. Now, I stayed registered with UCD because, you know, no one's mad enough to try and write their PhD in German, especially if you're not a native speaker. 
So spent a year in Heidelberg in the German Cancer Research Center. And then my boss got promoted. So we moved to a place called Ulm, which is on the border of Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg. Um, Einstein was born there and it has the tallest church steeple in the world. Apart from that, uh, it has a good university, but not much else. Spent uh, nearly four very happy years there. Um, wrote up my PhD and uh, then came back to UCD and did my uh, Viva. And my PhD was on G protein signaling uh, in, in various different um, conditions. So, okay, finish your PhD. What do you do then? Well, you know, Everyone was talking about, well, the, the Been to America Award, you know, if you go and do a postdoc in America, it's worth more. There's a little bit of extra value. So I emailed or wrote to a few of the, the big wigs in the G-protein field. Um, one of them got back to me, and that was Bob Rando in uh, Harvard Medical School. So uh, off I popped. That lab wasn't great. Uh, a few things happened. And after about nine months, I decided I wanted to leave. Applied for a position with Morris White and was lucky enough to get that and then spent three great years uh, in the Joslin and had a really great time. And that sort of fostered my interest in diabetes research, which uh, still exists today. Uh, so it was a tough uh, slog. I mean, we were working 12 hour days, but it was also great fun. Um, so my visa ran out in America. Things were coming to an end. I asked my boss, Morris, I said, listen, who would you go and work with if you came back to Europe? And he said, Brian Hemmings. So wrote to Brian Hemmings and then came back to Europe and spent three years in the Friedrich Mischer Institute in Basel. This guy discovered nucleic acids. It's an old school. Fantastic. Probably one of the top three institutes in Europe. If you want to do a good postdoc, go there. So I had a great time there. Got I think, published 14 papers. So um then was thinking about coming home. Things were starting to move in Ireland. Uh, applied for a job in UCD and got it. So came back to UCD, started working in the Matter Hospital with Hugh Brady. Uh, and we moved out to the Conway uh, when it opened. So I was one of the founder uh, PIs. Um, and, you know, graduated seven PhD students. Everything was going well. Uh, and then global recession, 2008. Uh, money was drying up for research, salaries were becoming tough. So I applied for a job in Queens, not really ever thinking I was going to get it or not that keen to come and live in Belfast. Uh, and then two weeks later, disaster, you get offered the job. Um, so moved up to Belfast and I've been here ever since. And so far, uh, I've graduated seven PhD students in Queens, so 14 in total. I'm the Associate Director of Undergraduate Education. I coordinate a module in Year One Medicine, and I'm heavily involved in the Dubai Partnership and also teaching in uh, our campus in Shenyang. So my sort of advice for people, lessons learned along the way, uh, work hard. The harder you work, uh, the better things are. Be lucky, but as somebody said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, reading. Read, 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 whether it's papers, whether you trawl through PubMed, not just the things that you're interested in. Read books, read the paper. Twitter, I find, is great for getting hits about new papers and uh, new, new results. And especially with the COVID stuff, I think it's really a good way to keep up. Go to seminars, especially outside your research area. If your PI says to you, 
only go to seminars on the eye or the lung or the kidney, that's really bad advice because you can always learn something from somebody, whether it's the way they speak, the slides that they use, a technique that they use, a little trick that they use. You know, what a, what a treat. Think about it. 45 minutes, you don't even have to go anywhere. You can stay in your own house, eat your lunch, listen to somebody who's excited about their research. You can pick up some free ideas there. Uh, plan ahead, but not too far ahead. Be adaptable. Always be uh, alert to new opportunities that come along. Uh, there's a saying in Japanese that chance favors the prepared mind. So if you have a general sense of what you'd like to do in your career, you'd probably be more alert to um, you know opportunities. And when we get back to actually going to seminars and particularly conferences, never be afraid to go up and speak to people that maybe you want to work with or collaborate with because they will appreciate uh, the approach. Trying to get on with people is key, right? We have to collaborate. The most effective collaborations are the ones that are uh, 10 feet down the corridor. I learned most of my communications and sort of management and getting on with people's skills. I worked in a supermarket for six years during school and college. So uh, there were some interesting characters, you know, in the butchery counter, heavily armed with knives and chain mail. So uh, I learned quite early that uh, getting on with people is very important. Don't be afraid to disagree with people in a constructive way. If you think something is uh, not right or you want to express your opinion, that's what we look for. You know, we're not looking for yes men or yes women. We want people to disagree in a constructive way. Skate to where the puck is going to be. That's kind of try and predict what the next big thing is going to be, whether it's a technique or a particular area in your research. And enjoy the journey and don't obsess about the destination. So don't be always thinking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, failure is a common and recurring theme in research. Experiments fail, papers get rejected, grants get rejected. Um, we have to learn to deal with failure and rejection. In previous years, if I got a grant or a paper rejected, I'd be, you know, annoyed for two or three days. Now I give myself about 10 minutes, I go and get a cup of tea and that's it. Right, next one. So it's about developing a thick skin and handling rejection because, you know, it's the only way forward. The other piece of advice is that finish things before you start new things, right? So it's easier to see the beginning of things and harder to see the end of things. And then final bit of advice, you can't do anything about the length of your life, but you can do something with its width and depth. So if possible, take Henry Menken's advice, enrich your advice, enrich your experience, go away for a couple of years and come back, I think, if you can, uh, because, you know, there's a big world out there and um, it's, it's, it's worth seeing something. Um, I just want to go back to your very early stage career and... Not that I'd imagine you've any regrets, but for the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you might have done differently starting out in the early stages? Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing I probably think back to more than anything is that I should have stayed, well, two things. I, I should have made, tried to stay in my PhD lab until I got a first author paper. We had a very advanced draft that my boss promised me he'd work away and submit and it didn't happen. Okay. And that, you know, that I think that's an important metric for PhD students now. So that's one thing, 
in hindsight, I should have been more aware of. And then probably another year, year and a half in Switzerland, it was an incredibly well-funded lab. I had just got my own grant from the Swiss Cancer League. Uh, I, I probably would have got a few ex- more papers. That I, I sometimes think, you know, would things have been different? But uh, hindsight is a great thing, and uh, they're minor things. So, yeah, not, not really any huge regrets. I mean, I'm happy where I am. Uh, maybe I could have got here a little sooner or in a different way. But, uh, yeah, certainly no, no major regrets. And then just when you're, you, I know you touched on your experience abroad. Do you feel that that experience in America is necessary for people who want to get ahead? Um, or, you know, can you work it if you stay local as well? I don't think it's necessary. But, I mean, you have to ask yourself... Um, Right, you're applying for a job uh, as a lecturer somewhere uh, with, with the research component. And on your CV is three years in, you know, it doesn't have to be America, but, you know, an institution or a place where Nobel Prize winners are giving talks every week, where, you know, you're surrounded by top institutions in, in top research labs. Um, you've challenged yourself by going to a new environment with the best from around the world. I mean, in Basel, the, the, there was something like uh, 56 nationalities among the PhD students and postdocs. We had, you know, the best people from Vietnam, from Pakistan, from, you know, all over the world. And you can only but raise your game, I think, if you, if you expose yourself to that. Um, so, you look, not everybody can do this. People have kids, people have families, people have caring responsibilities. I did it when I was young. Uh, I mean, I went to Boston when I was 25. And, and again, you learn a lot of life skills. You learn resilience. You learn how to look after yourself, sort of. You how to manage a budget, all that type of stuff. So it, it's not a requirement, but I certainly think you're improving your chances. There's excellent institutions in in. GB in uh, mainland in Germany in you know Switzerland. So for me, it was the right thing to do, and um, you build up a great network of contacts as well if you travel away. Uh, and uh, I would I would highly recommend it. So. And then uh, a follow-on question, actually: uh, Did you prefer Germany or Switzerland? And if you were to go for a postdoc or early career investigator position again, where would you go? Uh, I had a great time in both places, but uh, certainly Switzerland's like it's, it's just a great place to live. You get paid very well. There's an excellent healthcare system. There's proper support for people with kids, and so yeah, probably Switzerland would shade it, um, just because I've been back there more often. Uh, but you know, Germany's not far behind. Um, follow up on that question for that, and if you found language to be an issue when you were yeah. in Germany and Switzerland. I, I helpfully learned French in school. So, uh, I mean, the only word of German I knew was, was Sicherheitsgurten. And I don't know why I knew that, but that's seatbelt in German. <laughs> but within, I'd say, a year, I was more or less speaking German. Now, the problem was in Heidelberg, they all spoke English because it was an international lab an international institute. But when we moved to Ulm, that's a lot more rural. The technicians didn't speak English. The secretary didn't speak English. So, you know, it, it's, it's uh, 
the, the, the pressure on you and the power of, of that situation is, is how you learn a language. So I was teaching practical pharmacology classes in German during my PhD. Explaining scatchard plots in German is, is, you know, that was the high point of my German capability. It's not, it's nothing like that now. And then in uh, Switzerland, it was funny because we were trying to practice our German. There was me and a, another Irish guy who was there at the time. And we were trying to learn a bit of Italian and maybe speak a bit of French just to practice. And they would just want to speak English with you. So we started an Irish club. So we started to relearn our Irish just to annoy them. Um, so the answer is no, language is not a barrier. Not in, in English is the language of science. And, you know, going out for groceries and things like that, you pick that up fairly easy. German's quite easy to learn. Um, French is a little bit more difficult. But uh, no, that's I, I wouldn't let that put you off. Um, I'll just ask the fellowship question. So, yeah, my question was going to be... Um, First fellowship that was successful was it success first time round? Uh, was there much rejection experience beforehand, or you know how? When did you, at what stage did you start forming that idea before you major? Um, so I wrote a grant in Boston for the JDRF, so like a postdoc fellowship, and uh, that wasn't successful. So that was my first taste of rejection, and it took me a while to get over that one. Basically, because my boss blamed me, <laughs> he didn't take any responsibility. Um, but I did learn quite a bit from that about how to format it and how to pitch it. So that when I got to Switzerland, um, oh yeah, sorry, I, I had written an EMBO fellowship as well. And I got shortlisted and I went to Turin for the interview. And it went very well. And the person interviewing me said, look, I'm not meant to tell you this, but I'm going to recommend you for this fellowship. So I was like, happy days, and then uh, I didn't get it. So I was devastated because I thought I was a shoe-in. Uh, so that was a tough one. And then the, by the time I wrote the Onco Swiss, the Swiss Cancer League one, I, I, not that I didn't care, but it was like, ah, so I'm not going to get this. And then it's the ones that you don't care about that you end up getting. So uh, that was nice because that helped me get the academic position in UCD. I think they wanted to see that you were capable of uh, generating your own income. A few falls before uh, I managed to to sort of make it across the uh, the road. So, um, but that that's part of the game, you know. And no one no one sat me down and said, "This is how you write a fellowship. This is how you write a grant." Which is actually why I think what Alice has set up and and what you guys are doing is fantastic, because there's there's peer support, but also sort of a template, if you like. Um, for people who are thinking about this, because so much of what we do in academia is just work it out as you go along. Uh, whereas I think at least for uh, the postdoc training, the structure and the, the the parameters that you guys have set, I think is great. And I, I kind of, again, it would have been really useful for me to just get a bit of advice from somebody uh, back back when I was doing it all those years ago. That's great. Um one question I have for you is, what's the best career advice you've been given that you pass on? Um, try not to be the, the, the quiet one in a room. I mean, it, you know, there's a fine balance between not saying anything and saying too much, right? The old phrase, those who know don't speak and those who speak don't know. But at the same time, 
if you're in an interview and there's a panel of six people, they're thinking, do we want to work with this person for the next five to ten years? Are they going to be hard work? Is it going to be like pulling teeth? Or are they going to come up with ideas? You know, so um, I, I suppose I'm lucky. I, my mom, when she's trying to embarrass me, says he started talking when he was nine months old and he hasn't shut up since. So I've never had a problem with that. But even if even if you're not that confident of a person and you're not used to um, sort of chipping in and, and making a contribution, at least, you know, fake it till you make it and certainly try and develop those skills because team leaders want people who will contribute and, and will disagree with them, as I said, in a, in a constructive way. They don't want to have to do the thinking or the talking for everybody. So... That's perhaps a soft skill that you could develop. And as I said, I developed most of those skills when I worked in the supermarket. I, I, that, that would kind of be my, my advice is, is get over your reticence and your shyness if that's your, if that's your, your character and, and don't be afraid to put your hand up and make a contribution because it will be, it will be appreciated. Um, thanks so much, Derek. Your talk's really, really good. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find more and leave us some feedback on iTunes or on our website at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.